It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And of course, you can listen online and you can also listen on the iHeartRadio app. Uh, by downloading the app, you can listen anywhere you go. It's a pleasure to welcome back to the show John Moses. He is the manager of Objects, Paper, and Archaeology with the Canadian Conservation Institute within the Department of Canadian Heritage located in Ottawa. And he has graciously uh, come back on the show to talk about uh, Veterans Day, Remembrance Day. And uh, we have a special show for you on Remembrance Day here on Moment of Truth today. And I was very happy to get a hold of uh, John uh, and and uh, he said he would be happy to do this. It's something that he still uh, does because he has changed his position within uh, his his work uh, order. And uh, so it's a pleasure to have him here to talk about these things. Now, one of the things we're going to talk to uh, John about, uh, it will come up, is, is his dad, uh, Russ, or Russell Moses, and his involvement both with a residential school, because that plays a role in this, uh, as well as his role with the Canadian uh, Royal Canadian Navy and the Royal Canadian Air Force. Um, and we're going to be talking about other uh, veterans as well. Uh, so, John, welcome to the show, first of all. Well, thank you very much, Sago. It's good to be back. Yeah, it's nice to have you back. And uh, if people are wondering if there's a relationship with the name, yes, there is a relationship. Um, and uh, it, it's so great to to have John here to talk about, you know, John, I have to tell you, and I may have told you this before, but for people that don't know, when I was working with uh, APTN in Ottawa as the Ottawa correspondent, I went uh, to the your place of work um, at the time, um, and uh, we were you were doing some repatriating of some bones or something that was going on. Now, you weren't there when I was visiting. However, uh, people asked if I was related to you. And, okay. and, and um, I said, well, probably, and they didn't know at the time. Uh, they said you were from Six Nations. I went, well, yeah, probably, uh, because I, as you know, I wasn't raised on reserve. So um, the next day, because I left my business card, I got a call. And the call was from Russ. <laughs> I wish I was very surprised. It was from Russ, not you, right? So <laughs> very good. And uh, and within a minute of the conversation, before he even asked me, you know, uh, anything about, uh, my, he said, "How tall are you?" <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and I just went, okay, there's only one reason why you're asking that. <laughs> because unfortunately, the Moses, the extended Moses family, we're not known for our height. Exactly. Like some of the Mohawk, uh, yeah, Mohawk uh, citizens, for example. Yeah, that's right. So I thought that was pretty funny. And, uh, and he said, because your grandfather was like five foot six. And I went, you pegged me right there. So, uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I'm five foot seven. There so. you go. So anyway, um, it's a pleasure to have you here. Now, you know, one of the things you brought up to talk about was residential school and the, the involvement and how that affected things on the home front. I thought that was really interesting how, um, you know, Veterans Day, we think about the veterans, we think about the war heroes, we think about the, the, the sacrifice of the soldiers. But there was also, that also impacted the home front. And I guess specifically uh, in, Indigenous uh, communities, and we can take that right down to Six Nations. Um, yeah, I think a more conventional approach to looking at Indigenous contributions to Canada's military heritage has typically 
involved singling out the quote unquote war heroes and focusing in on those with, you know, what are presumed to be, you know, the, the, the most distinguished or the, the, the more distinguished service records as soldiers. So typically, if we're talking about the First World War, it's like who is the deadliest First Nation sniper of the First World War. If we're talking about the Second World War, well, who was the toughest commando of the, you know, the Second World War and mm. the the Korean War? In the first instance, it's Francis Pegamagabo. In the right. second instance, it's likely Tommy Prince. Right. But to, you know, Look beyond all of that, I think uh, 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 an unexplored issue remains the the negative impacts and the unanticipated outcomes for Indigenous communities at the reserve level arising from their involvement in uh, the Canadian and British Empire military efforts during during both world wars. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think your, your dad's experience is starting from his, his childhood uh, attending residential school, leading him into uh, his later life working in the, the uh, armed services and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, both with Canadian uh, Royal Canadian Navy and the Canadian Air Force. Uh, but yep. he also ended up working with the Canadian government, uh, right, with Indian Affairs later on as well. Yeah, eventually. And, um, you know, I I think what was going on just to sort of go back, circle back to the issue of the unanticipated outcomes in no particular order. These ranged from, um, you know, frankly, family and marital breakdown as, you know, parents departed for military service or for civilian war work in the cities or as elder siblings and other role models and caregivers did likewise. Um, as a function of that, an increased number of children wound up in residential schools during wartime. And that was certainly my father, Russ's experience. Um, he, w- he was at the Mohawk Institute, the Mush Hole, from mm-hmm. 1942 to 1947 under exceptionally severe wartime and post-war conditions. Um, you know, aside from that, there were also challenges to traditional political authority. There was the potential loss of Indian Reserve lands as as portions of some reserves were appropriated for military uses during wartime. Following the war, sometimes that land was returned, sometimes it was not. That remains an issue in, you know, particular reserve communities across the country today. Mm. Um, In my father's own situation, um, he was the third generation of the Moses family to actually be raised at the Mohawk Institute. Um, He was there in the 1940s. His own father, Ted, was there in the 19-teens at the time of the First World War. And the grandfather, my great-grandfather, Nelson Moses, was there even earlier in the 1880s. So that was three consecutive generations of the Moses family that wound up at the mush hole. Each one encountered different conditions. Mm. By the time my father attended during the Second World War, it had deteriorated to the point where um, its main function was seen as providing agricultural labor to help with the um, civilian food production effort on the home front during wartime because the mushroom actually sat on 350 acres of prime southern Ontario farmland with 
varieties of crops and orchards and livestock under cultivation, but the children themselves didn't derive any benefit from their labor. Mm -hmm. They were there to work the farm, to essentially provide the forced labor necessary to keep the farm operation going. But in Russ's particular situation, his father, Ted, who, as I say, had been at the Mushroom himself during the years of the First World War, was a welder by trade. And by the time the Second World War broke out, although Ted himself was deemed too old to be sent overseas as ground crew in Europe, he was eagerly recruited by the Royal Canadian Air Force as an airframe mechanic working at training bases across southern Ontario, repairing damaged aircraft. So Ted was away Mm. doing his military service in the Royal Canadian Air Force. The mother, Augusta, unfortunately, had suffered some sort of um, a collapse and was hospitalized for several years during the year of the war. And as a function, my father, who had just turned eight years old, and his younger sister, Thelma, and an older brother, Elliot, were wound up at the mush hole at mm. the height of the, the Second World War. And when these particular conditions were in play, um, you know, at that particular institution. So. Yeah. Now, I, I know you uh, your your dad ha- had said uh, that he was milking cows. They were prime Holsteins, I understand. And, and yeah. but they never like you say, they never derived any benefit from this stuff. And it was being sold to local markets. Do you know what happened to the money that was raised from that? I mean, they were they were getting any any benefit. I'm guessing that that the money that was raised. Didn't yeah, well, I, I can't say specifically, but it certainly was not funneled back into the institution for mm-hmm. the well-being of the children. Right. Um, yeah, everything was sold at market. Everything was diverted for the purposes of assisting with the um, industrial scale food production effort on the Canadian home front during wartime. Um, as my father's own um, written memoir attests in some situations, the kids themselves were reduced to begging on the streets of Brantford to help mm-hmm. supplement their meager diet. They would go, uh, they would, you know, sneak off the residential school grounds and they would um, um, essentially go begging at uh, nearby uh, farmhouses asking if there were any leftovers from supper that night, that kind of thing. And in my father's own situation, he was in the, he was 15, I believe when he left the Mohawk Institute in 1947 and he went to work on one of his uncle's farms as a farm hand and, um, when he turned 18 and as soon as he was able to do so, he actually joined the Royal Canadian Navy. And I think his intention there was to put as much distance, both physically and I guess emotionally as he could between himself and the Six Nations community, including the residential school. Mm. And uh, he served in the Royal Canadian Navy from 1950 until 1955, including Korean War service on board HMCS Iroquois, which was ironically a tribal class destroyer belonging to the Royal Canadian Navy of that World War II and Korean War vintage. Um, following, um, he left the, the Navy in 1955, returned briefly to Six Nations at that point and met and married my 
mother, Helen, who is still with us, and she's a retired nurse living here in Ottawa. And um, in 1955, Russ rejoined the military, but this time in the Royal Canadian Air Force, where he was subsequently trained as a, um, a safety equipment technician working on, you know, rigging parachutes and working with ejection seats and emergency survival gear and that kind of thing. They weren't, uh, he wasn't a SARTAC as such search and rescue technician, but they certainly worked very closely with the search and rescue squadrons doing that kind of work. All right. Now, the, the, the Iroquois, I understand, saw active battle. And if I'm not mistaken, it was, it was actually bombed. It was shelled by a, a Korean vessel. Yes, HMCS Iroquois was one of the Korean War Canadian ships known as the Train Busters, and owing to the mountainous interior geography of the Korean Peninsula, one of its main um, taskings was to sail up and down the, 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 the east and west coasts of the Korean Peninsula, bombarding railway lines that hugged the, uh, the coastline because of the mountainous interior. And um, it was October the second of nineteen fifty-two. They were they were hit by return fire from shore-based North Korean and communist Chinese um, artillery batteries, and they sustained losses. So they were they were actually the the, the Canadian Navy's own, only wartime combat losses during the uh, during the Korean War occurred mm-hmm. with those uh, with those sailors being killed on board that day. And when you say it got shelled, I understand that one of the uh, one of the other things that I read about that uh, was that from that shelling, uh, and I didn't realize this, but it makes perfect sense, I guess, at the time. The part of the, uh, I guess, insulation or whatever they they uh, prepared and built the ships out of had asbestos in it at that time. Well, certainly, yeah, Canadian naval vessels of that era including the, the the tribal class destroyers everything was you know if it wasn't wrapped in asbestos it was coated in lead paint mm-hmm. so on that particular day when uh, when iroquois was hit and the explosion occurred there were of course fires to be put out and everything else like that so russ was a number one of a number of the iroquois crew at that point who without the benefit of any sort of breathing apparatus were involved in uh bringing the fire under control and dealing with the killed and injured Injured, and uh, when Russ passed away from um, a rather unusual type of throat cancer in May of 2013, upon a review of his service and medical records, the Department of Veterans Affairs actually determined that his um, his death and his his final fatal illness would be attributed to his Korean War service. Wow. As a function of, uh, you know, having served in tribal class destroyers and as a function of uh, conducting firefighting and damage control operations under those conditions. Mm. Wow. Appreciate you sharing that. You're listening mm. to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest here on the show is John Moses, and he is the manager of Objects, Paper and Archaeology with the Canadian Conservation Institute within the Department of Canadian Heritage in Ottawa. And uh, this is a special Remembrance Day Moment of Truth, and it's a pleasure to have uh, John here talking about his dad as one person who uh, served both within the um, the Royal Canadian Navy, the Royal Air Force, uh, actually 
actually, he, he even went on to work later on within the Department of Indian Affairs with uh, Jean Chrétien. And uh, in his early days, he was one of several siblings within his Moses family that attended uh, the Mohawk Institute Residential School uh, located in Brantford, Ontario. Uh, John, one of the other things you mentioned there, and I'd like to address this as well, if we could, if you know something about it, and that is within the Moses family and within, I guess, the uh, veterans of the the war effort, uh, you mentioned nursing, and and I, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, there was a lot of a uh, lot of uh, family and and other women that uh, that took part in that that area of things within the war. Yeah, well, certainly, um, especially more so during the Second World War, there were a number of um, Canadian um, Indian women, Métis as well, mm. served in the the women's branches of the respective services. But going back to the era of the First World War, actually, on my mother's side of the family, on the on the Montour side of the family, my own grandmother, Edith Anderson Montour, as a young woman at Six Nations, she had determined that she wanted to be a nurse that you know that was her vocation that was her calling in life but unfortunately because of indian act restrictions of her era and you know she was born in 1890 so mm. i'm talking sort of circa 1910 1915 owing to indian act restrictions of her era um, it was very difficult for status Indian registered band members to pursue any sort of higher education uh, without being in danger of having their federal status and their, their band membership removed from them arbitrarily by the, mm. by the Indian Affairs branch. Any Indian in the legal sense who was in receipt of higher education was deemed to be assimilated and therefore there was no need for the government of Canada and for the Indian Affairs branch to you know retain them on the on 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 the Indian registered as it was called as mm-hmm. it's still called and mm-hmm. they were their names were removed and uh, they was expected and anticipated that they would assimilate themselves into the Canadian mainstream uh in my grandmother's situation her way around that danger was to actually go down to the United States and take her nurses training in New York City, beyond the the view and reach, obviously, of the Indian agents at Six Nations and so forth. So she took her nurse's training in New York City and was actually living and working as a public health nurse in New York City when the Americans entered the First World War in 1917. Mm-hmm. So rather than attempting to return to to Canada to, you know, um, to serve in the, the, the Canadian or British military, she joined the army nurse the u.s army nurse corps of the american expeditionary force and served overseas in france from 1917 until actually you know a year beyond the end of the war 1919 and it was at that point upon her return to new york city in 1919 she resettled there again briefly for the space of maybe a you know several months or a year something like that but eventually she uh, returned to the six nations reserve where she met and married my my grandfather Claiborne Mentor and she resumed her nursing career while raising her own family at Six Nations including my mother Helen who herself is a nurse by the way well mm-hmm. she's retired now but yeah. my mother Helen followed her mother Edith into mm-hmm. the nursing profession and um, 
um, Helen herself was a founding member of the um, Canadian Indian Nurses Association going back to the 1970s. But anyways, all that to say my grandmother, Edith, served as an army nurse with the U.S. military during the First World War. And, um, you know, it, you know, it has to be stated that it was Canada's racist Indian Act legislation of that era that obliged her to take her nurses training beyond Canadian borders. And that's how she ended up serving overseas with the American army as opposed to the Canadian military during the First World War. Mm. So, Right. Um, uh, John, the other thing you mentioned uh, there was about the expropriation of land from First Nation communities. I'm wondering, what do you know about that in terms of why why was the indigenous and reserve land uh, identified as 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 areas that the that the Canadian government wanted for military purposes? Well, I guess the thinking, you know, was and perhaps in some circles remains Indian reserves are by definition a certain category of crown lands. Mm. Some crown lands happen to be Indian reserves. Other crown lands happen to be, you know, national parks Mm. or other, you know, specially protected areas and that Mm. kind of thing. So I guess the the thinking at the time, whether we're talking about the First World War, the Second World War during the the wartime emergency, it was just automatically assumed that if there was surplus crown land available that could be used for military purposes, there was no harm and certainly no legal in, impediment in in appropriating that. You know, theoretically, it was supposed to be for fixed periods of time and following the return to normal peacetime conditions, any land that had been appropriated or expropriated would be returned, but that wasn't always the case. And, um, you know, the other issue too, uh, especially in the aftermath of the First World War was called the Soldiers Settlement Act. Any newly returned Canadian veterans who wanted to pursue farming as a vocation would likewise be provided with crown land. And in the case of newly returned Indian veterans, it was assumed, well, look, they are Indian persons who are returning to their respective Indian reserves, which are already crown land, rather than giving them, you know, quote unquote, fresh crown land, we will simply um, appropriate or dispense to them certain amounts of acreage from their own Reserves. So that's the, you know, the land in question, whether it was, you know, 50 acres or 100 acres, whatever, that would cease being Indian Reserve Crown land. And that would be given over to the newly returned Indian veteran as his private property. Hmm. Well, you know, you're, 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 remo- you're removing the community held land base and turning it over to the private ownership of an individual person, which, you know, obviously erodes the land base and sets up Mm -hmm. potential conflicts with that, you know, newly returned veteran and the rest of the community. And uh, so it was just, it was not a, it was not a successful uh, approach to say the least. So, yeah. Wow. Uh, Now, uh, there was a couple of other things I was hoping that we could talk about as well. And uh, we, I did sort of s- send you some information on this, and I'm wondering what you can and share with us about the uh, the 107th the Timberwolf Battalion uh, and the 114th Battalion, the uh, Brox Rangers. 
Yeah. Well, the, the, the 107th Battalion, the Timberwolf Battalion and the 114th Battalion Bronx Rangers were Canada's two largely indigenous military formations of the First World War. They were the they were battalions of the Canadian Expeditionary Force. That was the name given to Canada's wartime army that was shipped overseas to actually engage in combat at the front. The 107th Battalion had been raised in and around Winnipeg, Manitoba, and most of its seven to eight hundred man complement were um, Indigenous people, both Indian and Métis from sort of that area and from across the Prairie provinces. And in the case of the 114th Battalion or Brock's Rangers, that was raised in and around Brantford, Ontario, including the Six Nations Reserve. So there were over 300 um, men of military age who volunteered to serve in the 114th Battalion. Of those more than 300 who volunteered, there were 292 that were eventually shipped overseas. Um, upon arrival in the United Kingdom and some final training and some fundraising tours that they were sent on, the 114th was actually disbanded before it was sent to the Western Front. But most of those soldiers were added on the strength of the 107th Battalion. So Six Nations troops of the First World War um, likely saw their frontline combat service while serving in the ranks of the 107th Timberwolf Battalion. Mm. Okay, thanks for that. Um, Going back to your dad for a second, what in in retrospect, looking back at his life, looking back at at his involvement with the the military and and, uh, the war efforts, what, what did he did he share anything with you on that at all? Oh, yeah. Well, so, you know, he was my my dad had quite a sense of humor, as you as you know, and any members of our sort of extended families know he was well known for his sense of humor. But, uh, you know, I, 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 I guess the most telling thing he ever told me was the fact that he found after having been raised in a Indian residential school under wartime conditions, serving in the military was easy. Mm. You know, it wasn't until he joined the military that he knew that there was a meal called breakfast or that there were sort of items of clothing called socks and underwear that people wore. It was, you know, it was quite literally upon joining the Navy that, you know, he, he made these discoveries when they were issued to him as part of his, his kit. So, um, um, you know, it's of that nature. And yeah. uh, he, the, the military service, despite the fact that he experienced combat while in the ranks of the, the RCN, and uh, certainly conditions were a lot less severe when he was serving in the peacetime Air Force as a safety equipment technician. But, you know, the, the bottom line was that his time at the residential school during his childhood was harder than his 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 military service Mm -hmm. was more more um strenuous than than his military service ever was thank you well i know you have to to run quickly i just want to ask you one quick question are you familiar with uh, percy roy liquors and his involvement with the war 
I have heard the name. I don't want to go out on a limb here, but was he the fellow who was taken prisoner during the, during the First World War? No, or? I, I'm not sure. I just know uh, from what I believe, he, uh, mm. he, he did uh, see battle, and I believe he, he died uh, on the battlefield, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Yeah, well, certainly there were, of the 292 who shipped overseas during the First World War, there were 38 who were killed in action or who died of wounds or injuries or who were reported missing in action. So if you look at 38 out of 292, that's more than one in 10. So in that sense, the Six Nations troops were literally decimated with that, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, decimation being the removal of every 10th man is is killed or doesn't return. So that fits the, the strict definition of that term. Okay. That is John Moses. He is the manager of objects, paper, and archaeology with the Canadian Conservation Institute within the Department of Canadian Heritage located in Ottawa. And it was a pleasure to have him on the show talking about the Second World War, the First World War, and his dad, Russell, or Russ Moses, and his involvement not only with the residential school in his early days, but his involvement with uh, the Second World War. Uh, as He saw action on the HMS Iroquois, uh, as we heard, within the uh, Korean War. We're going to come right back with more with our special Remembrance Day on Moment of Truth. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And it's a pleasure to welcome to the show, I guess I should say, actually, welcome back to the show, Janice Montour, the Executive Director of the Woodland Cultural Centre. And she's here to uh, take part in our special Remembrance Day uh, special here on Moment of Truth. Now, the first part of the show, uh, which we just had, and Janice, I'm not sure if you're familiar with John Moses, who works in Ottawa. You probably are. And Uh, (laughs) Well, then we're all cousins because, of course, it's related to me as well. So um, it's a pleasure to have you here to talk because we were actually talking about the Woodland Cultural Center uh, or the Mohawk Institute as it was because of his dad's involvement uh, and and what the time he spent at uh, the Mohawk Institute, as well Mm -hmm. as his, uh, you know, some of his siblings, right? Specifically during wartime. So. You know, I thought it was really interesting, of course, um, about the history of the Woodland Cultural Center and the, and and how it was utilized uh, through the wartime specifically. Because I, I didn't realize at the time it had, and I'm not sure if you guys still have the same amount of acreage that it had, like over 300 acres of land that it had at the time. Oh, we're definitely a lot smaller now. So we sit on <laughs> roughly. Um, about 29 acres, um, but Woodland itself really only takes up about eight acres of that. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, uh, as, as he's pointed out, it was heavily used uh, for agricultural purposes. They had, uh, I guess, vineyards, they had cows, they had all kinds of uh, animals that they, and they used to milk these animals. And of yeah. course, you know, as we found out, of course, the kids did not get any benefit from uh, the milking. This is prime milk uh, and the cows that they had, the Holsteins. All this stuff got sold to the uh, to market, uh, local market. And one of the questions that I asked him, and he, he wasn't sure, I'm not sure if you know, is that the money that was derived from the selling of these goods from, uh, you know, the Mohawk Institute, do we know where that money went? Uh, from what we understand, it went right back into the the school operation budgets. Um, the school was um, sort of heavily 
always in deficit, uh, didn't have enough funds to actually properly run the school operations. So mm-hmm. any money that was sort of made through, you know, sales of, you know, milk or edibles and, and vegetables and fruit uh, that came to market was then put back into the school budget. Right. Okay. Well, as it is now, the Woodland Cultural Center, and of course, you do have a museum there, and yes. um, and 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 so you you have uh, you have some uh, some things that change as far as some of the the presentations and and exhibits that you have, but you also have permanent things in there. Um, what can you tell us, and how does how does this relate to the veterans or the wars at all? Yeah, I think you know um, the way our museum is structured. It's sort of like on a historical storyline so mm. it goes from you know the first inhabitants of the land who were not necessarily the the Haudenosaunee people at right. the time we, it was our favorite hunting grounds and we would come up here but um the neutral people were you know had villages set up in this area um and then it takes us all the way to present day and so part of it in the 19th and 20th century we sort of we do speak to about um the Haudenosaunee confederacy um the american revolution um and how that really sort of created this mm, divide and really removal of our traditional homelands in upper new york state into now what is um you know the different Haudenosaunee communities in, in canada and the united states so looking at specifically associations of Grand River, uh, Wanda Mohawks and Mohawks of the Bay of Quincy and how we came to those, how we came to these lands that are now in make up our community and evidently became our reserves. Um, but as you go through the uh, museum, you'll also come to, you know, the 20th century. And we really talk about in that part sort of historical figures. So we look at people like E. Pauline Johnson, uh, James Beaver, uh, and we talk about the changes that were happening in communities. And we talk about the rise of Christianity. We talk about the elected council system taking over the traditional governance of our Confederacy Council. And at the sort of very end of that uh, hall, it really sort of, in a, through the artifacts that we've been able to uh, receive through either donation or, or loans to us from family members, talks about. Uh, individuals who came and served in the wars. So it really looks at particularly World War One. Um, we undertook a large exhibition which was entitled um, commemorating the centennial of World War One in Six Nations, Walter and Titanic, men and women who served. And this was an exhibit we did in 2014. And through all that research we were able to sort of identify how many people came from Six Nations of the Grand River. Wata Mohawks and Tainanega, and really interesting in that sort of hall is a display of the 114th Battalion flag, which was made by the Six Nations Women's Patriotic League for World War One, and that battalion was really unique because it was a primarily an Indigenous uh, uh, formed battalion. You know, they had a non-Indigenous um, sort of lieutenant who. Uh, was named Colonel Andrew Thompson, who was from Ottawa, but originally from Cuba, Ontario. And he set up this battalion with uh, a formal colonel before him. And it really brought together uh, Indigenous people. I think it was enlisted around 287 came from sort of Gunnawage, St. Regis, and Six Nations. And they were actually... 
um, received the name the Brock Rangers because they were descendants of those warriors who fought against Brock and, you know, Oh. Uh, or of 1812 right. and so it's really got a really interesting history and so that Italian is really interesting because it has you know the king's colors it's got regimental colors as well and it was able to be you know a flag that was adorned with figures and symbolic of our culture as well and so it's really it's really interesting and uh, we're very happy that we have that flag in, in our collection Mm. Um, and also, you know, it was interesting because this, this battalion was very indigenous led. It was they were stationed at Cat Warden for a, a long period of time before they went overseas. They mostly fought in the English Isles. Um, but there was, from what we can tell, not just from that battalion itself, but there were 323 members from Six Nations alone. Wow. I'm glad you brought that up. I didn't know that you had the flag. I remember seeing an article uh, recently with uh, Phelan Johnson, and uh, she had a relative who served there, and she was holding up that flag. Yeah. Uh, uh, Percy, is it Percy Roy Liquors? I believe so. I don't know all the names. I'm not very good at all the names yet, but I believe, yeah, that she does have a relative. Janice, you don't know all the names of everyone that served in that. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I did. I wish I did. Well, I do know, uh, you know, I'm glad you brought it up because that is something also that uh, that John and I spoke of. And we know that uh, there was uh, two or three um, members of the Moses family that served in there. Arnold Moses, James Moses, uh, a couple of them. Um, so, uh, yeah, really interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. So that's something that people can go to the museum, the Woodland Cultural Center, and see uh, as they, they tour the building. Now, of course, we're still under COVID. So can you tell us a little bit about the hours and how things are operating in terms of visiting the, the Woodland Cultural Center? Yeah, so we are limited. Um, Six Nations does have a little bit more stricter rules than the province at the time. So we're allowed eight visitors per hour. Uh, we do encourage you to go to our website, woodlandculturalcenter.ca, and pre-register and book your tour time just to make sure that you're not waiting and you can get in when you would like to get in. Um, and we're open from 10 to 3, Tuesday to Friday, and on Saturdays, 11 to 4. Okay, now the other thing I want to ask you about, because um, most, uh, as reserves are federally uh, operated, um, that means they also uh, adhere to the holidays for f- federal uh, holidays, and uh, Remembrance Day being one of those. So does, does, is the Woodland Center open on November 11th? No, we are not. We are close for November 11th to ensure that we have, give our employees the time to observe the holiday. Right. Um, but yeah, I definitely encourage people to come out. And we will be doing a special sort of social media post okay. about Remembrance Day and, and some of the veterans from um, even our own team. And some of our team uh, has ties to people who fought in you know, World War One, II, Korean War, all, and all the war subsequently after that. Um, my great grandmother Edith Montour was uh-huh. the first um, Indigenous nurse, and um, my great uncle Gilbert Montour also fought in World War One. You see, I didn't realize you were directly related to Edith, and we were just talking about her again with John, so I'm glad yeah. you brought that up. It's such a small world um, when you, you start looking at this, so I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, and, and, you know, it's really interesting to, to know that history and to know that she went, she had to, or she at least made the decision to go and study nursing in the States so that she wouldn't uh, uh, have to deal with uh, the Canadian government and uh, Indian affairs and all those kind of things. Yeah, she was actually, I mean, 
wasn't allowed to study uh, nursing in Canada. So therefore she had to go to New Rochelle, New York and and receive her nursing uh, degree. And subsequently right after was sent off into into World War I um, Mm. as a field nurse. Um, and she has a memoir that she kept a diary. She wasn't allowed, she wasn't technically supposed to keep those. Um, you were supposed to keep a diary of your time, but she did. And uh, so a lot of the information we have about her experience was preserved in that diary. So we're very fortunate to have access to that. Mm. You know, something that I didn't mention with, with John that uh, I, I hope I, you know, I don't, hope you don't mind me bringing this up because, you know, when we talk about Six Nations, we, we always think of the Six Nations, but the, the Lenape or Delaware people, uh, and I believe the Montours are, have some Delaware lineage, do they not? No, we're Mohawk. <laughs> okay. So, um, <laughs> Uh, anyway, there is that uh, that lineage, and certainly the Moses family has the the Delaware mm-hmm. lineage. And I know this uh, Percy Roy Lickers uh, was Onondaga and and Delaware mix. So uh, there's mm-hmm. there's that that uh, involvement that I don't think a lot of people understand is is there because we don't really hear a lot about uh, the Lenape or the Delaware uh, from Six Nations. Uh, we sort of get bogged in there with everything else. Yeah, well, and then like the Tudolo were also adopted, yeah. in, right? So there were other nations that were adopted, like Lenape and Delaware, yeah. Tudolo, yeah. um, were brought into the Confederacy, right? Um, mm-hmm. Sort of once we moved into the area of 1784. Um, but yeah, it was actually interesting because a lot of people asked us questions about, like, why was there such a heavy involvement from Six Nations? And mm-hmm. I think a lot of that came from the time, you know, when we moved here, those who were sort of followed, Joseph Grant, who was a captain. And sort of that sort of war uh, and military style was something that a lot of that history was sort of passed down from generation to generation. So you see it more of 1812 and you see it again with the world wars. Um, it's interesting too because a lot of times, you know, a lot of people don't realize that the Military Service Act, which made it compulsory for Canadians to enlist, um, Native people were actually exempt in 1918 after. Um, the government passed order and council. So we weren't actually, you know, we didn't have to mm. uh, conscript mm-hmm. like the rest of Canada, uh, but it was pretty voluntary and from the community, just as the right river, it was quite high. There was, you know, a lot of families, mm. if you look at families that would go um, mm. and actually all enlist together. Um, so that's, you know, sort of interesting, interesting fact. It is, and I remember uh, doing something on uh, on this a number of years ago, and the the actual numbers of First Nations uh, people that did join the military and go to fight was extremely high in some situations. I know some reserves had a like a very very high, much higher than uh, other communities within Canada. Yeah, yeah, and there was actually another battalion. I believe it was from sort of around Manitoba near Winnipeg. That was also a fairly uh, significant Indigenous battalion. Uh, yeah. So there were a few. That was the uh, the Timberwolf Battalion. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, the one hundred seventh, and and that was something else I spoke with with John about. Uh, I know that uh, there were members of that battalion that, when it was disbanded later, then members came to join the uh, Brox Rangers. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Very interesting history, and I'm I'm glad you you brought up that 
sort of line drawn from the War of 1812 and how that kind of uh, trickles down in, into the, the lineage that you brought through in the Brox Rangers and how that, that relationship is there. Uh, it takes us right back to, to the foundations of, of Canada as a country uh, and, and the involvement, of course, of, of Indigenous people and Six Nations specifically in terms of uh, the involvement and, and what they did to help, uh, to help defend this, this now known as Canada. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and another interesting part of that display at the sort of end of the 20th century hall is uh, we have photos of Tom Longboat. Mm. So obviously a lot of people know him as a long distance runner, but he actually was in the Canadian Armed Forces in 1916, and he was serving as a dispatch carrier um, with the 107th uh, ah. Pioneer Battalion in France. Um, he was actually wounded twice, uh, but he was able to make it home and came back in 1919. I didn't realize that he was wounded and, and did that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we have a photo of him. Um, he's actually a private at the time and he was getting the, the photo of him is he's getting a newspaper from a France newspaper boy. And that's the photo we have on display. Wow. But he was a dispatch carrier. Fascinating stuff. Now, if people are interested in uh, finding out more, they can go, of course, to the woodlandculturalcenter.ca website. And if you uh, actually go there, you scroll down, you can see everything about the center. You can see what's coming up on the calendar. You can see the, uh, well, of course, you still have, uh, Janice, also your uh, your campaign to save the evidence uh, going on. How is that going, by the way? Uh, it's going quite well. Uh, we're uh, fully raise the funds for phase three, which we hope to start in the coming weeks of construction. So, um, improving accessibility in masonry um, and uh, replacing the windows of the building. Uh, phase four, which is the interpretation phase, where we'll be hopefully being able to turn the site to an interpretive heritage site uh, by late 2024. Um, we're halfway through the fundraising for that, which is phenomenal. So, we have about half a million dollars left to raise, and, and the campaign will be wrapping up. That's great. That's good to hear. Congratulations. Now, the other thing uh, I want to ask you about is the, the specific picture that's on there for Save the Evidence. You know, the kids, the boys are looking very military-like in the, in the yes. kind of... Are they, are they from... Are they, is that a picture from the, the uh, you know, the Mohawk Institute? Yes. So during the 1910s and 1920s, it was a very military-run uh, institution. So the headmaster at the time came from a military school mm. um, and then thus in turn uh, turned a lot of the you know disciplines and the regiment and the school into a military style uh, institution. So uh, there were a lot of things where they were being trained in how to shoot and, and other military drills as part of their uh, uh, time here. Wow. I didn't know that either. Uh, yeah, they actually had a, I believe we have a trophy on display in the museum of um, their time when they were, um, during the time period when it was in sort of more military run, mm. um, and it was for like a shooting uh, shooting uh, competition. Wow. Wow. Fascinating. What else you got coming up that people might be interested in hearing about with uh, the Woodland Cultural Center? Uh, yeah, Indigenous Art is our annual jury art show, so that will be coming down in the next few weeks, and we're gearing up for the next exhibition, which will be a retrospective of Benjamin Chichi. 
Cool. And, you know, I really recommend people to go check out the Woodland Cultural Centre.ca website, uh, specifically because you always have things coming up and you always have sort of live events that are going on. Sometimes you have some great lectures. I know yeah. you had uh, Tom Hill was there a little while ago doing some stuff. And, yeah. and, and it's great. You have so much stuff going on there. There's, there's so many things. And this is, you know, it's all with if you're in Toronto. Uh, it's like within an hour and a bit of, uh, of the city. Uh, uh, to go there and and see this this great stuff, and um, uh, that's great, Janice. I, I want to say uh, now, uh, and uh, you know, for joining us on the show to talk about this. Is there anything else you can think of that we haven't spoken about, whether it be for Remembrance Day, Veterans Day, uh, or the history that comes to mind that you want to share? Uh, yeah, I, I just think it's really important for um, Canadians to recognize the contributions that Indigenous people did play in in wars. Um, not just World War One and Two, but subsequent wars after that. And you know, there's still a very strong um, sort of veterans association still here in the community at Six Nations, and um, they do a lot of great work uh, in the community. And obviously, they're the ones who put on the Remembrance Day services here at Six Nations. And you know, if it wasn't for us, we would have actually also were aware of other communities and. and the veterans that they have in their community. So the project we did in 2014 really sort of opened our eyes to the contributions that just didn't make and we just like to share that with yeah, and you know, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because, of course, the, the Veterans Association and the veterans are always uh, part of the grand entry at uh, powwow, the Six Nations powwow, mm-hmm. uh, champion champions, as well as the Mississaugas of the Credit, and I'm sure other uh, powwows that take place uh, right across the, the nation. Uh, it's always important to remember, as you say, and always important to recognize and uh, pay homage to uh, those veterans that served uh, uh, to help preserve this this country and others around around North America. Janice, Jimmy uh, and Yamago for taking the time to join us and, and share this with us. And, and congratulations to you. I know you've been back in this position, what, for a year and a bit or more or what? Uh, yeah, about 18 months. Yeah, so congratulations. It's going well? Yeah, we're very, very busy, <laughs> so it's good. Great. All right, Janice, take care, and uh, thanks again. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. That is Janice Montour. She is the executive director of the Woodland Cultural Center. You can find out more about the Woodland Cultural Center, what they have going on, uh, not only for Veterans Day and the uh, museum that you can go through and get caught up, as she was saying, about uh, some of the history uh, right from the very beginning, uh, right around the War of 1812, the involvement of Six Nations, right up to uh, the present uh, uh, First and Second World War, and members of the community that uh, fought with the, uh, the Canadian Army services. To finish off our show today, we'd like to play you three messages from three Six Nations veterans, Al Sue, Welby Isaacs, and Bruce Patterson, all Six Nations veterans serving at different times and, as you'll find out, in different parts of North America and abroad from their time in service, both in the American and Canadian Armed Forces. Hi, my name is uh, Welby Isaacs. Uh, My nickname is Ike. And I got that name when I first joined the military, when I arrived at boot camp. Someone said, uh, the, the corporal said, this is a new man, Isaacs. One guy at the back hollered, how you doing, Ike? And that name stuck. So I joined in 1956 in December. I did my uh, basic in Camp Borden with the Canadian Army. And 
I went to Germany in October 57, served two years over there with the Armored Division, came back in December 59. I went to Egypt in 1962 with the United Nations. I served one year over there, and uh, I also spent about a year and a half on tanks. Then I went to reconnaissance, which was scout cars. And then uh, when I wasn't doing that, I served the last four years as a phys ed training instructor in the military. And that was in uh, Camp Gagetown, New Brunswick. And I enjoyed my time. And I think uh, it's a great thing for any young man to go into. I was 17 when I went in. I had to get someone signed for me, which was not a problem. And... Uh, I did get to see the world. I got to see a lot of Europe on the government uh, government's uh, paycheck. But uh, coming back home to serve here with the veterans, it's been, I think, one of the best things I've done. And to have people come up to you and ask you where you were, what you did, and I'm not, I'm not afraid to tell them what I did. And how, I guess, how good I enjoyed the service that I, that I served with. And uh, plus the guys I've met back here that I didn't know had served. And, of course, most of the guys here now served with American uh, outfits, uh, Marines or Army. And I think I'm about the only Canadian uh, serviceman left that I know of from here. So I joined in 56, like I said, the Canadian military because uh, I didn't know anybody else in the, in the U.S. to have me sponsored or recommend. So I went on my own. And that's uh, pretty well my life. I've enjoyed it. And I think it's good for every young man to at least give it a try. It won't hurt you. It'll make you a better man. Hi, this is Al Sue, and I'm proud to say I'm a veteran. I was a member of the 1st Infantry Division in the States and the 3rd Army Division in Germany. I don't think about those days as much as I used to, but certainly on Remembrance Day I do. I can't speak for other vets when they say you'd have to remember more about those days on November 11th than you would on other days because it's so focused on veterans. One thing that stands out from my Army days is the memory of how some country's peoples despised American soldiers, not because of the collateral damage that they uh, did, but, as I discovered firsthand while I was in Germany, was because of how arrogant some of them were. I'd like to think that things are different today, but more importantly, I hope that nobody forgets what soldiers past and present do or have done to keep us safe. You don't have to attend services every year either, but veterans do notice if you do, and it makes us feel good when we see that. If you are one of those that do, thank you. It's greatly appreciated. Hello, my name is uh, Bruce Patterson. I'm uh, with First Vice with the Six Nation Veterans Association of Schwegan, Ontario. I served in uh, Vietnam. 1968 to six to 70, 1969 to 70 in Vietnam. 
My unit was uh, 1st Infantry Division. Uh, nickname was the Big Red One. We had a, a year over there in uh, Vietnam, and uh, this day means a lot to, uh, to me for the veterans that didn't make it back from that conflict and uh, the way that uh, people now treat uh, Iraqi and uh, Afghanistan veterans is a lot better because I think they learned from how they badly they treated the Vietnam veterans uh, when they came home. I think a lot of people real know that now. Uh, it's also, for me, it's a remembrance of uh, all our POWs and MIAs that are not uh, back yet. They have not been found, but they're still engaging in uh, different places looking for uh, our veterans to bring them home to their families so that they can have uh, some kind of a closure. Uh, we celebrated uh, our uh, Six Nation veterans on the 17th of October uh, last week uh, because of the conditions and uh, COVID. Was, uh, we had no no uh, crowds or anything. We didn't do our usual things, but we had to do something to remember our Native veterans. And we read off the names, and which were... I think there was probably 45 or 50, I don't know offhand, that died in World War I, World War II, in the Korean and uh, Iraqi and uh, Afghanistan conflicts. So That's about all I have to say, but keep all the veterans in your memories today. Wear a poppy if you can. And uh, that goes to a good cause helping the veterans and their families, which uh, at this time is probably means a lot. And it's hard for uh, the sales of the poppies to make anything because of the restrictions now, but uh, please do what you can. Thank you very much. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.